Welcome to a new episode of the City Gents. These dudes are just cracking jokes, but, you know, I, I'll keep them to myself. Y'all hear about them later on in the episode. Uh, we got a special guest. Uh, we got Ariel Smith. Um, she runs her own podcast. Um, with her podcast, we'll be kind of discussing it a little bit more, discussing her. Um, I do got my co-host here. Um, I'm not even gonna say that I'm the primary host because they get all offended. He go. couldn't help himself. He just said it then. Hey, what's going on, y'all? I'm Craig Mack. He, he couldn't help. The only reason he's starting uh, today is because this is his guest and his friend. But she's a friend of ours now too, and a friend of the podcast. Exactly. Exactly. So welcome, everyone. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you to all of you for me being here today. I really do appreciate it. So now that we all introduced ourselves. I'll say I'll start off by asking Ariel to introduce herself. Like, what I know, me and you kind of connected on IG and random other websites, um, and kind of, <laughs> kind of became quote unquote friends of each other's podcast. So, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into podcasting? Absolutely. So, uh, once again, thank you all so much for having me here. Uh, the name of my podcast is The Food Truck Scholar, and that's because I am a PhD candidate at Purdue University, where I study the food truck culture in the United States broadly with um, a focus pr- primarily on African-American food truck culture. So that's kind of how the podcast kind of evolved. I wanted something that was going to be more than just me writing a dissertation that my committee and folks read, and that's it. I wanted to do something that actually builds a platform for the people that I'm interviewing and the people I'm studying. So that's kind of how that evolved. Uh, I'm not from the Midwest, though. I am proudly from Birmingham, Alabama. So I'm from the 205. Oh, Southern. That's right. <laughs> I, that I you, thank you. Yeah, I thought I was, was going to give it away. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised it didn't give it away too soon. But uh, yeah, so I'm from the South, been in the South my whole life. Um, my background is in management, and then I eventually found myself into teaching, so I do have a master's degree in education. This is the last degree, y'all. I'm not going back to school for nothing else after this. <laughs> hey, look at you. We got to get to your level. <laughs> yeah, you just do it all. So um, I, I have a question. So what made you want to focus specifically on like uh, food trucks for your dissertation? You know, actually, when I think back on it, I've always been about food in some form or fashion. I've always been fascinated by it, um, growing up cooking, growing up learning about entrepreneurship. I think it kind of started informally when I was an undergrad. Uh, our student center was being rebuilt, and in the process of that, we had food trucks that would come, and you could pay for cash, or you could have them on your dining plan. And I almost didn't want them to bring back the student center because, like, man, the food on, on these trucks are better than what's in the student center. So it's just, <laughs> you know, it's just keep with this energy, right? And then uh, after a while, there was a couple of food trucks that, uh, if you ain't a part of Birmingham culture, then you're missing out. There's certain food trucks that you from Birmingham, if you had them, and then there's this one truck that everybody. And I was like, how do I not know about this truck? So I made it my life mission to have this food truck because ain't nobody that's a transplant but to come in and say they had this food truck and not me and I've been a proud resident native resident so I had it blew my mind and loved it so I've always on a mission to just find that truck anytime I could 
when I left Birmingham for grad school, uh, I saw a lot of different food trucks that was in Nashville at the time and just really loved the food that came out of it. It didn't start becoming a research question until I came to Purdue. And I'm on Instagram and I'm seeing all my friends post all their plates because that's what we love to do. We're foodies. We post everything we got. And I'm trying to figure out all these places are black owned, right? And they wasn't existing when I was in Birmingham. So I immediately felt slightly disrespected and slightly inquisitive in the sense of how come all these good restaurants pop up when I leave Birmingham? I gave you the best years of my life. Like, what's going on? (laughs) And so (laughs) I wanted to know was gentrification a part of it? You know, Birmingham mm-hmm. is going through gentrification. Uh, property values are rising. We always know about access when it comes down to land and capital and finances. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I wanted to know, did it have something to do with that on a personal level? That same week I got to seminar and my professor is like, so how are those midterm papers coming? And I said, oh, <laughs> so did the rest of my cohort. None of us had an idea of what we wanted to write. And he said, you know what? You're all first years. You're nervous. Don't worry about your dissertation. Just what is the question that's on your mind right now? And that was the question that was actually on my mind. And so I spun it to him. And he goes, I really like that idea. I think that's a very great, fascinating question. I said, do you now? Very well, then. Okay, we're going to make this work. We- term paper on it he gave me some feedback I wrote my final paper on it I was like well I'm getting A's so you know what we're gonna stay with this because I can do well I can eat and then I can call my love for food research <laughs> we're not gonna change this right right <laughs> so yeah that's how it started so somewhat of a wing it sounds like you winged it a little bit though <laughs> absolutely absolutely i call it a finesse it was absolutely <laughs> a finesse the system and hey you know it has worked um learned a lot from it i was in hawaii back in november before auntie rona came and shut us down so it has taken me far yeah you've been traveling too huh <laughs> so you've been all over all right. oh she's been traveling as she literally just does the oh. What's your uh, like top place that you've been to so far? And then what would be your uh, top future destination? Man, so top destination. Hawaii was amazing because it is truly a street food scene. Mm. And the Hawaiian culture in it in terms of like portion sizes, like everything's gonna cost you about fifteen to twenty dollars. Just prepare for that when it comes down to food. Okay. But the portions is just so worth it. And um I was out there for a conference presenting on my research and I just loved that scene. I was in uh Bristol, United Kingdom last year on my work and I just love the fact that even though it's not really a food truck scene there is most definitely a presence of like food. It's a hodgepodge of different cultures. So those two were my top um, a destination scene for me. Any other time I would say Miami is a food truck scene, but Florida just be on something. I don't know what's going on with them. So (laughs) We just were in Miami in October of last year. How was it? It it was interesting. It was was cool. It was definitely a culture shock. Yeah, I, I, yeah. The, I like how Craig Matt said it was a culture shock for sure. 
Oh, wow. Well, Purdue definitely, the West Lafayette area would be a culture shock, too, in a different way, I believe. Um, I'll say Portland. Portland has a very mm-hmm. interesting food truck scene where the food trucks don't really move like that for real. They just stand like in these like giant land plots. Oh, and man. Trap Kitchen has a food truck out there that I really want to get to. So I would say that would be my top destination. Okay. Awesome. So my question becomes then, what are like some things most people don't even know about food trucks? Mm. I think it's the things that they take for granted. They um, And you see this a lot with the restaurant industry, but more specifically with food trucks. They think just because your family like it that everybody's going to like it. And that's not true. Mm. Um, and people really have to understand that when you're doing a business you really have to figure out who is your target audience and your target audience doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be your cousin your family your spouse your children or whatnot but the top thing that i would think about is the cost so overall it is cheaper but there's small things that people really don't think to a food truck they immediately assume that because they were a restaurateur that has ran a brick and mortar that they could easily jump into a food truck. And that's not the case at all. Really? No. Um, so how does the entrepreneurship work differently, like in the, between a brick and mortar and a food truck? Well, one of the things that people, it, it makes sense, but they don't always think about it is the space. So I've been on a couple of trucks um, in the time that I've been doing this and it's very small. You do not have like these large flat panel griddles. You don't have all this space that you would have in a full size kitchen. If you are a line chef or any of that sous chef, whatever, you don't have all of that space. You have to get creative with what you can or will not do. You have to think in advance on, is this going to be a food item that I can prepare on my truck? Is this something I need to do in my commissary and then put it if that's the case, I need to be thinking about forecasting and how much of this product I'm going to be able to make in advance, put on my truck. If I run out, do I have someone that can go back to the commissary and bring it to me? You need to be thinking about that. Um, also, you need to be more social media heavy than a brick and mortar. I believe that it's fair to say across the board, social media is essential, especially now during covid but a food truck, that's life or death in many cases, because you need to be able to tell your audience, hey, I'm going to be here on this day at this time. You don't have a set location, right? You are constantly recruiting people to come out and try your truck. They need to know a schedule that needs to go out in advance of where you're going to be. If something falls through and all of a sudden you and the person's property or whoever property that you're on, if something falls through on that, then you need to be able to post real quick and say, hey, we're not going to be here today or there's going to be a change of location. Those type of considerations, a brick and mortar doesn't necessarily have to have. The other issue is sometimes the battle between a brick and mortar and a food truck. You know, Chicago is a prime example of that. In 2017 and 2016, there was a battle that was going on between the brick and mortars and the food trucks. Because the brick and mortars felt as if the food trucks were taking away their customers. So mm-hmm. they're working with the city council saying, hey, they can't be uh, less than 200 feet from us. 
they have to park in these certain places. And so the food truck scene almost stalled out in Chicago. In fact, last year, it all went all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court. And then there was conversation about it going to the state or the federal Supreme Court, but it was struck down at that point. So it gets very messy when it comes down to litigation. It gets very messy when it comes down to policies. And you have to go into a space knowing that that's a possibility as an entrepreneur. So you need to know what your laws are, what the ordinances are. You have to be prepared to put money aside for permits. Um, it can get even messy in terms of how many permits a city or municipality is going to release per year. So you have a lot of cities where there's actually a black market on the permits where they go as far up as $20,000 for a permit. Jesus Christ. Wow. Did... <clears throat> Jesus. <laughs> black markets for permits. Man. Yeah. Street vending is wild. Really is. Street yeah. vending is wild, man. It, it it It's a deeper level than what people actually think. You even have what some people are calling um, food truck mafias, where yeah. these are the really big popular food trucks. They have these ends with different people in politics and companies where they get the, the real hot spots and the exclusive contracts and the other lesser known food trucks, you know, they don't. And if for some reason a smaller food truck does land that big contract, then the bigger food trucks will do what they call is a black ball. So all of a sudden they start telling all these other companies and all these other folks, hey, don't work with this truck. <laughs> so, um, hey, you got to protect your, your turf. Yeah. Hence the, hence the mafia. I guess they are gang like. Yeah, this is just this is just kind of like mind blowing to me because I didn't I didn't know it was this in depth. I used to just you know on the Food Network, I'm like, oh okay, cool food truck, but I didn't know that you know there was so much you know behind it, like even to the point of you know being blackballed, which makes sense because when you were bringing up you know the restaurants, brick and mortar restaurants versus food truck, it kind of reminded me of when Uber first became real big in the taxi companies. We're trying to push Uber out because they felt that they were taking, well, I mean, they were taking, you know, the revenue and streams and, you know, they, they made it to where you couldn't get picked up with some parts of the airport. And it was just a very, you know, big thing. So that's what that kind of remind me of. And I didn't realize that was that huge when it came to food trucks because the Uber and taxi thing, you know, made the news and you kind of saw where it was going. But with this, I didn't know anything about this. You know, that's an excellent example, because at the end of the day, it's all about competition. So any industry, no matter the model, there's going to be competition somewhere. Um, at the close of 2017, the food truck industry was at a $2.7 billion industry, which was big enough for the federal government to finally take notice of it and publish the first food truck um, federal report in March of 2018. So who knows where we are right now because they haven't put the numbers out on it exactly. But when you got a segment of the food and beverage industry that's pulling in billions of dollars, those billions of dollars is coming from a couple of places. Either A, it's an untapped market that has never came out before, or B, it's coming from those who used to support brick and mortars and now yeah. they're not so understandably so people are getting riled up about it right 
Wow. Yeah, it's beyond mind-blowing. Like, some I knew, but a lot of it I didn't know at all, really. So I'm I'm mind-blown. I really still appreciate you coming on, like, blowing our minds. So what would you think, like, if somebody had to go into that that industry, what what warnings would you give personally? Like knowing that what you know, what what warnings would you be like? Look, if you really want to go into this, like like these are the things you got to know. And I know you. Number uh, one. Okay. No, I was gonna say I know that you touched on some of them, but what would you personally say? Do your research. Too many times people are jumping into the food truck industry and they're not doing the research of who's already there. If a city has eight taco trucks, yeah, you could be the ninth, but please make sure you're doing your research to figure out what exactly is going to make those tacos look different. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Like this is all about competitive advantage. For a food truck in Austin, Texas called Taco Sweets. And it's quote unquote a taco truck, but they actually take a waffle cone and that's the taco and it's ice cream that's stuffed inside of it. Interesting. I don't know how to so, feel about that. You know, <laughs> I, I got to try it. I'll let you know when I go back to yeah, Austin. Right, Hopefully, Wona says I can go back. But, you know, you got to think about what's going to be different. You can have all different types of dessert trucks. Everybody don't need to be an ice cream truck. Everybody doesn't need to be a cake truck or cupcakes be different and have beignets or something like that. Um, I just had so today. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, I'm I'm a New Orleans cat. You know, my family's from New Orleans, so that, that that's a huge thing for us. Oh man, I had some peach stuffed beignets when I was in Nashville Ooh. last year. So if you're ever in Nashville, you know you check out the beignet bar. Um, so do your research. Prepare money saved up. When it comes down to maintenance, you probably want to have about five to ten thousand dollars saved up, and that's especially if you have a truck instead of a trailer. You want to start building partnerships. Like, yes, I just said there's a whole lot of competition that's going on with different trucks and brick and mortars, and that's most definitely true. Mm -hmm. But also, what I've seen that help people get over that is the partnerships. I've seen some food trucks in Birmingham that do a great job of coming together and it'll be one savory truck and one dessert truck. They park at the same location and they pull from each other's audiences. That's a great thing to do. Do not slack on your social media. Be consistent with that. Be consistent with your product overall. Like some people why they come to a food truck is because of the plating. Plating has become huge in the food industry overall because we're in this age where everything is now has to be photogenic. Yeah. So take the time, make your product look good, and that it consistently looks good each and every time. Wow. That's, yeah, I guess social media do. It'd be making everything boom nowadays. It'd make me look good at times, too. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, with some camera filters and some other stuff. But yeah, you're right, bro. It, it makes you look good, man. Whatever. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> so when you when we talk about healthiness, would you say that uh between a food truck and a brick and mortar, um, I know that they may be 
having competition, but do you feel that people have a tendency to have preconceived notions on which one is uh, healthier or even food choices and things like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, because food trucks are still trying to overcome the stigma of being called, quote, unquote, roach coaches. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. That's the first thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, that goes all the way back to, like, 1800s and stuff, right? So we have this whole preconceived notion of, of the cleanliness of a food truck and there's no way it could be clean. But the reality is, is that they go through the same health department that a brick and mortar got to go through. Like health departments have now caught up to the fact where sometimes they have a person that their sole job is to inspect food trucks. And the health department can roll up on a food truck at any moment in time and shut them down if certain things ain't right. The same way they can do a brick and mortar. So, you know, it's the same thing. In fact, What's funny is that people who often say that a brick and mortar got to be 100% clean and they don't trust what a food truck can do, they must not have a lot of chef friends. Because (laughs) when you have chef friends, they'll tell you, okay, this is what's going on in the back. Mm -hmm. Or I'm not going to eat at this restaurant because I know how to get down in the back. So it's, it's all this perception thing that just because you can sit down and you're surrounded by four walls that it's automatically better and it's not. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so how how would you you know you know some people don't have um, you know especially people in lower income neighborhoods and stuff probably don't have the you know same resources readily available available to them so they might not even know about this industry or really how to get into it or, you know, maybe didn't have any exposure growing up to even know that this is a, you know, a different outlet, a different avenue to take outside of, you know, your typical brick and mortar or, you know, a, you know, grill type spot. Um, how would, what would your plan or what kind of ideas maybe do you have, or do you see to kind of like help them, you know, get that resource out to them so they can know more about that? I love this question. I love this question. So that's part of the reason why my podcast exists, right? It's because I get sick and tired of you having to pay for everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. There, there's just no yeah. reason for that. I understand that because I'm in a privileged position where I get to travel and sometimes it's me out of pocket. Sometimes it's the university paying for different grants that I wrote and I can talk to people and I can find all that information out or you can go to a course and pay X amount of dollars. No one has time for that. The podcast exists so that I can have people from across the Most of them are black. And I do that intentionally because the representation for black food trucks is not where I believe it should be. Hmm. Uh, We have tons of black food truck owners out there, but when it comes down to uh, media representation, It's as if we don't have that many out there. And I do that and I talk to them about how did you start? Did you have business mentors? I ask that of all my guests. Um, How did you get into cooking? How did you get into the business? Why did you start your food truck? So that they could hear those answers. So that's one way that I do it. The other way that I always suggest is that surprisingly enough, in a lot of cities, when you're getting ready to start a food truck, I would always tell them one of the things you can do to work on a food truck first. 
And if you can't work on that food truck, see if they'll let you volunteer. In a lot of cases, they will, especially now during COVID where, you know, some food trucks are making tons of money and some maybe not so much. But if you're volunteered on that truck, that's firsthand experience, man. See, okay, their out-the-window process is this many minutes. You can find out what they do well. You can find out what they don't do so well. And that's stuff that you take down notes on. And when you get ready to start your truck, you have an idea of where to go. Say that um, some of the other food truck podcasts, like the Food Trucker, uh, Food Truck Empire, you know, they've been out longer than me. And they've done a great job about you know, the the basic logistics of how to start a truck. They also have great Facebook groups. Um, I have one uh my colleagues in the industry have some as well that have thousands of followers in there and they're asking questions every single day. I'm in those groups as well about how do I start a truck? I live in this city. Uh, what is the process for getting a permit? Um, how much money did you all save on your truck? Did you get a truck or a trailer? So those, those sources are free. You know, like you can go on Facebook and you can join these food truck groups and you can start asking people. I did a three, a three part webinar series with the app Eat Okra about black food entrepreneurship. That was about mastering online delivery, menu creation, your first year in food trucking where I had um Black entrepreneurs, as far as the Philippines, right? <laughs> I was telling them about their experience in the food truck industry and the lessons they learned along the way. And I'm looking forward to producing more content like that. So, yeah, Facebook groups, uh, podcasts like mine and like my colleagues, blogs. I think those are really great starts and they're all free. Wow, that's deep. And I hope our listeners like paying attention because I mean, Seriously, these are things that I didn't even know about. It makes me uh, especially want to do a lot more research um, into the industry because there's things that even if I wanted to do a a food truck or understand how a food truck uh, works and the steps, uh, it's very important to kind of know that type of things, especially where I'm eating from, like you said. (laughs) Um, I didn't really know um, the, uh, I guess, I don't call it the measures of even the health department because i was going to ask like how are uh food trucks regulated and who regulates them since i know you did say that it's um becoming more of a a billion dollar industry now and i guess what i i wonder is um how is the regulations on food trucks even like when it comes like the taxes or since they're not brick and mortars and things like that like from a financial standpoint um would you think it's easier to maintain financially is it or is it more extreme to maintain um compared to in general i would say that it's cheaper but a nuanced answer would say that it depends so yes food trucks do not have to pay um an occupancy tax or property tax and that is usually the gripe that brick and mortars have with them when they're you know talking to city hall yeah. and city council but you also got to think about some, they got some problems that brick and mortars don't have. So let's look at just an actual truck, like not the trailers that you can haul with, a, you know, like a regular truck, like a Ford F-150, but like the actual tr- food trucks you can drive. Okay. Those things can break down and they break down 
all the time. I just had a guest on my show. He bought a truck from Mobile, Alabama, and as he was driving it up to Mobile from Mobile, it broke down on him. Oh wow! The day he bought it. Wow. So, what people got to understand is most of the time these trucks, they're old UPS and FedEx and potato chip. They're they're those old freighter trucks, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. And they may be buying them used. They may be about twenty five thousand to forty thousand. If they buy them brand new, fully decked out, custom built, we're looking at probably one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars for the truck. Um, uh, if they're buying it just a truck and it's completely gutted out, they may get that for as low as five to ten thousand dollars. Understanding that they're going to have to build that inside out. That's going to cost thousands of dollars. They're going to have to build out the transmission because by now that transmission been going for about a hundred and some odd thousand miles, maybe 70, 80 if they're lucky. They're going to have to do new transmission. They're going to have to do spark plugs. They're going to do all that stuff under the hood. Then you got to wrap it to have that nice design that you're used to seeing out there. That's going to be anywhere from two to maybe $5,000. So <laughs> let's think about how much money that you got to pour into this truck um, or they could do like a vinyl wrap where it looks like it's wrapped, but it's kind of nine. It's only got one design. That's a little cheaper. So you're going to put money down on that. You're driving this truck all through the streets. You're going to have wear and tear. So we already be heated. Like I'd be a little frustrated when my regular car got some problems. Can you, <laughs> right? Like my catalytic converter went out and I was all types of hot. So yeah. if think about if you already mad about your regular vehicle, can you imagine how pissed off you could be when you got to take care of another one and that is your bread and butter? Can you imagine what it's like to got an event? That event's probably going to pay you about $1,500. You on your way there and all of a sudden the engine blow. Devastating. So now you lost the money from that event because you can't get there. And you're out of money because you got to pay for that engine. And until that gets fixed, you can't do other events. Oh, yeah. That, that's a significant loss of income looking at all those three ways. Exactly. So it's some cost that that a brick and mortar doesn't necessarily have to worry about. Now they do, a brick and mortar could have some problems. Like there could be a fire, there could be an electrical issue, there could be like an issue with the plumbing and I'm not belittling those problems at all, but those aren't as frequent to happen as you would have with something that's actually mobile and is experiencing wear and tear daily. Wow. So you know, one thing I think you, you said that the federal government is finally right. They, they develop a report because in 2018, said it was $2.7 billion industry, mm -hmm. I, I believe. So with that, you know, similar to like, you know, a Barnes and Nobles, how like, you know, books, people would go in to buy books, but now you could just get that online. And, you know, brick and mortar, you know, bookstores are becoming, you know, fewer and fewer unless they're in mom and pop location. You know, they have that loyalty because, you know, people are just, you know, it's a mom and pop's State uh, location, people take care of them. Do you see that kind of that similar thing possibly happen in the future when it comes to food trucks versus uh, brick and mortar restaurant, or they will always have a place for both? Or do you see people kind of gravitating 
more to one to the other in the future? Yeah, so I definitely think both are here to stay, but I will say I am a little concerned for brick and mortars from the sense of small local owned brick and mortars. I'm going to be a little bit more specific okay. on that. Uh, that makes sense. Oh. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I was downtown in our little, I don't really call it a city, but it's a little town. So I was in, <laughs> and I'm walking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm walking downtown. It, it, it's that type of, it's like the type of downtown that you probably saw in Lovecraft Country. Oh, oh yeah. It kind of looks like gotcha, that. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, make yeah. Make a lot of sense. Yeah. So I'm walking down the street and it's so empty and it's, it's looking rough. Like they got a couple of people out there, but it's the small restaurants that I'm very concerned about whether or not they're going to pull through. Because ironically, they're the ones that need it the most. They're the ones that receive the less, the least amount of help from these PPE loans that we've seen um, the news talking about. And more specifically, Black-owned restaurants and businesses in general were the most shut out of receiving support. About 97 to 98% of Black businesses were shut out of these PPE loans. Wow. Most of the money. Yeah, most of the money went to large chains. So chains like Pizza Hut, chains like McDonald's and Subway, all of these different restaurants, they were lobbying, they were getting money. They got thousands, millions of dollars uh, in COVID relief. It was the small chain, local owned restaurants that have not received help that we are very concerned if they're going to pull through. Food trucks, by nature, overall, I feel like it's going to be fine because by design, they're curbside. Mm -hmm. By design, you know, you can order online from them. You can do that. Um, and they can pull through neighborhoods. So I'm starting to see some of them act like the, the ice cream trucks, right? They're parking in neighborhoods and apartment complexes and people able to come out the house. I know that some people want to, you know, get back out into the bars and stuff, and some of them are uh, to sit down and eat because they miss that experience. But I'm afraid that in many cases they're going more to the chain restaurants who are going to be fine, who've gotten millions of dollars mm, of help, yeah. uh, and not the locals. And I do want to also acknowledge that even within the chain restaurants, you know, franchises hurt too. And so franchises aren't necessarily as protected as the parent companies. I do want to be fair and acknowledge that as well. So, yeah. So like a franchise Panera versus a corporate owned Panera might not have the same, you know, protection and they could be. Well, they don't have the same protection. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I did not know that about the PP loans. I, I saw some stuff, because uh, I was trying to follow and keep, you know, tabs, especially on the fact that they haven't, you know, passed another relief bill even at this stage yet, because I've been seeing, I think the last thing I saw, it said close to 100,000 small businesses have closed since the pandemic. Um, something around there, it, it was a drastic number around the cost of the country. Most of them were restaurants um, because they just, they, they couldn't afford to stay open. 
and they didn't get the relief, which was kind of weird. But like hearing that and hearing you provide that information that now I have a better understanding of why they closed down, even after those bills were that bill was passed. So there's a lot of pieces going into that. And the information I signed, because um, I want to be very clear with the listeners, the, the information on those numbers that came out between, I want to say, April 28th and late June. OK, OK. So and that was broadcast on the news as well. So I'm not just pulling right, them right. randomly. So they can always go back and see that it was um, very shut out in terms of the process. Um, I think part of that has to go through the dissemination of information. And in many different communities, we're the last to find out about certain things. Um, and the process becomes very murky as, as how that goes. So I did the best I could when information was came out to me. I provided links to different Zoom calls from accountants that were saying, hey, this is how you provide this type of information. This is how you go for those grants. But the other thing that we have to remember is that COVID did nothing but exacerbate and expose the discrepancies and the disparities that we've always had. Mm. Um, I believe it was Malcolm X that said, when America catches a cold, Black America catches pneumonia. So there's always been a discrepancy in terms of how capital and wealth circulated. Uh, there has always been a discrepancy of capital investments in different communities, which affects property values of businesses, which is why our Black and Latinx franchises are paid less, make less money, get less support because of the neighborhoods that they're in as opposed to our other counterparts. Um, there's always been that problem. So when COVID hit, uh, businesses in various communities and primarily in the Black community, because I'm talking about that because that's my research. Yeah, right, right. When COVID hit, these businesses overall were not prepared to sustain that blow. Right. We're talking about not having the infrastructure to shift to online ordering. We're talking about not having enough employees to handle that, not making enough margin to sustain such a blow where money's not coming in, but I got all these people on payroll, right? Um, just a lot was not happening. <laughs> right, the, right. The, the, the accounting all of the different platforms that were needed to sustain that, to even apply for some of the loans, that was a challenge because what's happening is that they threw this money out. They didn't really give a lot of clarification as to what was needed. And the accountants that I've spoke with is that when money comes out like that very fast on the front end and is very unclear, that means that they're going to come for you on the back end, which means if you did not have the documentation for how many employees that you actually have on roll. If you don't have the documentation for how much your expenses are in terms of rent, in terms of insurance, whether you're bonded, insured, if you don't have all of that information together, when they do come to you next year for taxes and they say, hey, provide documentation for X, Y, and Z because, you know, you got that money, right? right. We got some businesses that are in trouble. Wow, that is pretty that, that's substantial, especially like in different communities, like you said, um, going along with like pay gaps, uh, disparities, communities. So how do you think that uh, we can improve um, even us as a as 
people that are learning about different things? I know you have a lot more knowledge, but what advice would you give like someone that is newer uh, learning about the, the information regarding like status and especially with restaurants, businesses and things like that, entrepreneurship? Well, let me say this, you know, I'm still learning. Um, don't let the degrees fool you. Those degrees just let you know that I know a whole lot about certain things. Right. But <laughs> yeah, like I'm constantly educating myself, especially within the past year and a half, because I realize how critical it is for ecosystems. Answer to your question is we have to start building strategic ecosystems. All that means is that we are building a community of people that things, and it's all about generating wealth. That's what that is about. Like not necessarily all that susu talking about. <laughs> it's like, for example, y'all are podcasters. I'm podcasters. There's a podcast collective. It's called the Black Pod Collective that I'm a member of, and. Every month, there's member meetups. Every month, she's doing um, learning about PR, where I'm learning about marketing, where I'm learning about contracts. And she's bringing in people from Essence, and she's bringing in people from all of these top-notch places that are where I want to be. And they're saying, these are the concrete steps that you need to take to expand your business. I would tell anybody to be a part of those affinity groups I think I pay like maybe five dollars a month. Oh, that's not to do that. Yeah, Black Pod Collective. She has a, her own podcast that's talking about the podcast for podcasters. Uh, so those are small investments. I would also say, um, really sit down and work on your business. I was one of those people that this evolved out of a passion project. Is something that I was just very passionate about and I wanted to see content get passed down to my community in a way that I didn't feel like it was being done. After a year of this, right, I realized, okay, this is not sustainable. It's heartfelt. It's not sustainable. What is it going to take for me to become sustainable? So what I've been doing is I've been working on my business model canvas, which is just a business plan on one sheet of paper in a chart. And I've done quite a few of them in the past. I didn't understand what was going on. So thankfully, <laughs> I had someone in my life that is all about building strong businesses in the area. And he gave Zoom workshops for eight weeks on a business model canvas. And I can happily provide that link to you all. Y'all can rewatch it and you can share it with your listeners because I feel like everybody that is an entrepreneur needs to know a business model canvas. You need to yeah. know your customer channels. You need to know your value proposition. You need to know uh, how are you creating your price? Because a lot of times we think about, okay, I spent this much on the materials and then I'm going to do some fancy number of times, 1.4 and mm. get a price. But you didn't add the value. What's the value? Hmm. You know, so we even got to revolutionize how we think about pricing. And so that, I think I did it for eight weeks. It was an hour long on a Monday. The videos are up now. People can go back and watch that, right? That's information that came from an R1 university uh, that it has a whole institute on economic development that we can take advantage of right now. It's all about making information. 
think Shamir got cut off for a second. So bear with us. You know, we're all in different locations. Yeah. We'll give her a second to kind of connect. But we did appreciate, we have appreciated her coming on. And it's important, like, especially um, just like we were talking about earlier, Pat's got different entrepreneurial ventureships going on. Um, I do as well. And I know Pat, uh, Craig has different things going on as well. So um, learning those values, like, it's going to be important as you, you understand your business and what you want your business to be and how um, you want to organize your business. Uh, it's a lot of people that just sit and be having like, you know, a couple of beers or whatever, or just hanging out and just turn around and be like, yeah, I just came up with this great idea, but it takes more than just a great idea to get uh, success. You know what I mean? It takes more. So it, 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 it really does. And she's helped a lot. Um, I definitely um, will provide links and stuff for this website as we uh, or for this episode as we, you know, get them. We'll make sure we put them in the descriptions um, because this is something that could benefit a lot of people. And and oh, give me a second, y'all. Hold up. Phone's acting crazy. Yeah, that's correct. Sorry, as Pat saying, it can benefit a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, no, uh, um, yeah, it could definitely uh, benefit a lot of people and it could help because some of the stuff she was mentioning, I had no idea even from like the price point and stuff because what King J. Ron said is right. You can, you know, sip some beers all day long and talk about like I have this idea, but unless you execute it and execute it effectively, which means you don't just go out there and just do it with no type of game plan. Um you, you just, you know, the simple answer is you just won't be successful. And that's just the reality of the situation. And, you know, some things that she provides is really going to help uh, springboard, you know, a lot of us who are, you know, struggling to get over whatever hump. We're all in different stages of, for those of us who are entrepreneurs and pursuing other ventures, we all are in different stages. So, you know, just having, you know, somebody on and having people who have different perspectives on things could definitely help lighten the load and help us, you know, with everything. Cause she, she kind of helped with, you know, things with my clothing line. Cause it took two years to get to this point. It was an idea that started, and I'll be real brief and real quick, but it just an idea that I started in 2018 in a kitchen with, uh, with my business partner. And, uh, you know, we tried to do a production, but we realized we didn't have the capital for that. We tried to do different things or whatever. We failed. Um, just to keep it like a hundred, we failed maybe three or four times before we even solidified and found something that we thought was a good niche and that worked for us. And um, even that process wasn't golden, wasn't smooth. It was finding out, you know, the website, it was finding out, uh, you know, a bunch of factors, you know, how the payment was going to go, um, how we're going to do our taxes. I already got a CPA agent set up, even though our taxes aren't due until like next year. I, you know, I made, I, I ran through stuff with them with uh, my accounts and with the company to make sure we were all on board prior to tax season. So we're not bringing him a bunch of mess so we can have everything. The books could be clean. Um, we went to three different artists for our logo. Um, uh, really four, but um, three main ones before we found one through, through a connection. And 
you know, some of the people we went try to finesse us. They, you know, this is why another thing is important to have not just verbal contractual agreement, but understand the laws in your state and you need, you need stuff in writing. And that kind of almost burned us had we not, you know, figured out something, but somebody just tried to finesse us um, pretty much out of five grand. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Obviously, he didn't, but it was definitely an attempt. So it's really good to make sure you have a game plan and to move forward. Uh, you have a game plan going forward. You know who your audience and what you want to do. You're not just going in there, you know, blindly, essentially. Yep. Well, we got our back. It's having some weird coronavirus. Line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'd be like that. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I know uh, Patrick was, or Santiago was just uh, talking about, you know, kind of going over what you were just saying as well about, um, you know, his situation and the knowledge that you bring in uh, is very important. And we want to definitely provide some of them links um, because, like you said, I mean, there's so many things that people don't even realize. And I know you were uh, continuing uh, to talk about you know, that course that you took and working with, uh, making connections with people as well. So I'll let you finish as well. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, it's all about that investment in you. And for me, I believe education don't have to be at a university. I'm a strong believer of that. It's just so happened that some of my education has come from there. But I can honestly say a lot of the uh, education that I've received on how to grow my podcasting business and how to uh, move forward overall it wasn't at a university. Sometimes it may be at a partnership with a university, but that's just not the only way that you learn. Like I said, that, that membership with the Black Pod Collective, that's $5 a month. That's a Wendy's biggie bag. That's $1 above a four for four. Like it, it's Starbucks. It's whatever, you know, and I'm cool with, with spending that because for me, that's not a waste of money. That's a capital investment. Um, it's about taking the time to really find, uh, I guess, your affinity group. So if you are an aspiring chef, that's about getting around people who are doing what you do. They already have a collective and see how you can be a part of that and get the information that you want from that. I just sent you all the link uh, to that organization. They're in Alabama, but the information they have provided has been invaluable. I've been joining their calls um, virtually because everything's virtual now, but it's been absolutely amazing. So definitely having more resources like this has been great, but also in a lot of big cities, you don't want to sleep on organizations like SCORE. Uh, they work with businesses and help you with your, you know, your business plan. Uh, if you're concerned about like f- how to do a 501c3, like that's information that you want to glean from. That's information that you want to learn And it's all free. And usually your local library, which is why I'm a huge proponent for libraries, in addition to the great resources they already provide, a lot of times they have the books for free, the materials that you need on how to start a business. Uh, So definitely don't take those for granted and use those as well. Perfect. I mean, so uh, besides, besides that, um, what would be your final thoughts on like 
getting connections and things of that nature. Um, when you talk about, I know you said connections, how, besides like finding people on, uh, through websites and things like that, what would you think would be a first step for, uh, besides a library, um, to find connections or even to get to know people? Like, what are ways to approach people when you are doing that, if you don't mind me asking? It's something that I'm learning to do right now. Be comfortable with admitting directly you don't know something. So I like that a lot. A lot of times we're a little hesitant to admit that there's something we don't know how to do. And so we'll ask it in a real roundabout way. And because we asked it in a roundabout way, we're going to get a roundabout answer that may or may not be the answer that we needed. So I got people in my life that, and some of them aren't in my life. I kind (laughs) of ask them to come on in. I'll get on LinkedIn and I'll see that somebody is, let's say economic developer. It's something I'm interested in. It's something that I don't know a lot about. You reach out to that person and say, hey, I realize that this is something that you do. I don't know anything about it, but I would like to learn. Do you have 30 minutes on this day um, to talk to me? Uh, If so, can I treat you to, you know, can I send you a cash app you like for $5 so you can get you a coffee or something like that? And can you just tell me what you know? Or uh, if you don't have time to talk to me, is there any sources that you recommend that I check out? Any books you recommend that I read? Any uh, memberships you suggest that I have where I could learn this? You have to be comfortable with saying, I don't know. That's probably been the most freeing thing for me because you could be in these groups and you can have connections. But if you don't say, I don't know how to do this and I need your help to show me, it ain't going to get done. Wow, that's deep. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, oftentimes, in any uh, industry, even if people are working at a, a, a nine-to-five job, a lot of times they're scared to ask a question. So I think that's one of the most important things you can do is just ask a question if you don't know. You, but they said, close mouth, don't get fed, right? Facts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's facts. I appreciate sure. having you on today. Um, if you want to shout out your podcast and um, Maybe our listeners can check it out. I'll let you shout it out, and uh, hopefully we can get you back on here soon. We really enjoy having you. Well, you know, I yes. thank you for you know inviting me to be a part of your platform. Uh, I've been listening to some of the episodes, and you know, really proud of the content that you all are doing, and hope to see more of your work. But absolutely, if you are interested in learning about the food truck industry, uh, stories of how people got involved, then you need to check out the Food Truck Scholar podcast, available now on every listening platform. Very excited to announce that we have been voted as the number one food truck podcast for 2019 and 2020. So I'm very excited about that, seeing that we just came out last year. So thank you to everybody that has been a huge part of that. Um, Recently, we just got a shout out from NPR a couple of weeks ago. So it's only going up from here. So most definitely tune in to the Food Truck Scholar. We come out biweekly now on Mondays. And you can also follow me on Instagram at the Food Truck Scholar. Perfect. And thank you for being with us, um, especially sharing our platform with us. We really appreciate that and helping even us develop in different ways. You know, you can never know too much information. So, again, I thank you. Yes, thank you thank so much. You. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Have a great day. You we too. Got-